Hello and welcome to the Armenian News Network Gurung Week in Review. I'm Asbet Bedrosian, and together with Hovig Manucharyan, this week we're going to talk about the following major topics. Kocharyan's prosecutors won't go away. Snap electoral reforms. New Gallup poll. And what's going on in Ukraine. To talk about these issues, we have with us Aspet Kochigyan, who is an Associate Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the American University of Armenia, and Emil Sanamyan, a Senior Research Fellow at USC's Institute of Armenian Studies specializing in politics in the Caucasus with a special focus on Azerbaijan. Today is Easter Sunday. For those of our observant listeners, we wish you a very happy Easter. Christos Haryavi Merelots, Ornyale Harutyuna Christosi. Hello and welcome, everyone. Hello, Aspet. Hello, Emil. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. So this previous week, as we already discussed on our podcast last weekend, the Constitutional Court decided that Article 300.1 of the Armenian law conflicted with Article 78 and 79 of the Armenian Constitution. Article 300.1 did not exist at the time, and during a period when President Robert Kocharyan is alleged to have violated it. And also, when the law was adopted during the term of the following president, Sersarxian, it explicitly said that the law did not apply retroactively. Yet this past week, the prosecutors appealed to the court to not drop the case against President Kocharyan and to continue with the charges against him. Aspet Kochigyan, can you give us a brief history of Article 300.1 and how it applies or doesn't apply to the case against Kocharyan? Actually, it was passed exactly to the year after uh, Kocharyan's tenure ended in 2008. It was adopted and introduced in March 2009. Basically, it has two major uh, subdivisions. Well, Article 300 is about usurping state power. And the first one, as you mentioned, it's when, uh, you know, state uh, seizure of state power in violation of the Constitution, and it can be punished with an imprisonment of up to 10 to 15 years. Interestingly, the second part, and I think this is also something that the current government might have used Article 300.2. It's about exemption or protection of people who actually can, can come forward and talk about any violation or usurpation of power. So basically whistleblower kind of a, a clause. It's obvious that in the case of this current government, they introduced it as the best possible and the most return, let's call it that way, in terms of making a case against former President Kocharyan. But I think, you know, looking at this and the timing of it, it's quite interesting to see how the constitutional court is actually challenging the current government especially from the perspective that the current government now is under fire and have, you know, are in a very weak position. Right. The way I'm looking at it is twofold. One is that the Constitutional Court is looking at this as an advantage or as an opportunity for them to balance off Pashinyan's executive branch power. And the other thing is that I wouldn't put past them that they are showing that this is uh, also an issue that, look, how there's a check and balance. We don't intervene in constitutional court. Far from being true. Essentially but this a show that be... the government is actually working properly. Yes, and also an excuse, maybe. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, this is very hypothetical, right? We can only right. uh, make assumptions based on what we have uh, out there without reading, being able to read people's minds. That it's also a way to just drop the case, because for the last two and a half years it didn't get anywhere over the last two years so this is also a good opportunity for the government to save face quote-unquote by saying that we tried but the constitutional court didn't accept or didn't pass so where do you see this going from here well uh, timing is everything right 
Uh, you have elections coming up. I don't think the government would be able to come up with new cases against him. They would like to prevent him from running, Kocharian running, but I don't think they will be able to do anything about it. This is going to be something to be dealt with uh, post-election, post-June. But I wouldn't also exclude the fact that during this, uh, the next three months or so, a myriad of cases might be popping up here and there and to influence borders, right? Akin to what happened with the 2016 uh, U.S. election when uh, FBI director came up with uh, with an issue about Senator Clinton and that had a huge impact. And to a large extent, a good impact on the election results. So uh, I wouldn't put past them that there might be some kind of a, a poking going on up until the election time against Kocharian. Interesting. Emil, where do you see this case going? Is it going to bounce around forever? Well, of course, it's going to bounce around for as long as Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan, he's in charge of this government apparatus and uh, he wants it to continue, so it will continue. From the beginning, uh, the case is based on on the opinion of uh, Nikol Pashinyan that Kocharyan is to blame for what happened on March 1 and should be in prison for it. He wrote that in his newspaper <clears throat> as an editorial back in uh, at the time when he was in hiding after 2008. And basically the entire case is based on that editorial. So it's a, it's a political position translated into this, legalized into this court case. Uh, however, uh, it started with a lot of basic problems like uh, whether the issue of immunity, presidential immunity, that he, you know, Kocherian acted within his uh, presidential authority to order troops back and forth. So that's, there's a big question about that. It hasn't been addressed by the Constitutional Court yet. Then there's the the technical issue of whether the clause is appropriate, you know, having been adopted after uh, the fact after 2008 and uh, whether as constitutional court ruled it's uh, applicable it's uh, not in violation of constitution it's just uh, it's a myriad of issues uh, legal issues uh, however armenia doesn't really have a legal system it's a political fight where the current person in power both is trying to rewrite history what happened in 2008 and also uh, make sure that his most politically potent challenger is constrained. So yeah, Asbet mentioned already that the idea was to keep him in jail for as long as possible. You know, that was possible until last year. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's not possible, but they want to still uh, hang this case over him. There's a couple other cases being, you know, reinvigorated from the early 2000s that might also constrain Kocherian. We'll see whether uh, he's in, indeed registered to run for prime minister. Um, if he's not, I mean, it won't be the first time. For, remember, um, 1995, uh, at the time, one of the largest opposition parties, ARF, uh, was uh, banned basically uh, from running um, in 1995, and might, you know, same might happen this time. Uh, they might find some kind of national security grounds to uh, uh, prevent their main uh, opponent from running. Yeah, and regardless of the merit of the case, it just feels like a complete distraction from what the government should be focusing on right now. It's always like that, isn't it? You know, we are all familiar with the politicization of the judiciary, which is quite common almost everywhere. But there's also a term that I have come across a lot, not as the term, but in practice, especially in this part of the world, in in Georgia, Armenia, and the Caucasus, or the former Soviet space. And that is the judicialization of politics, the other way around as well, where you actually end up referring to political actions uh or taking political any political act, uh, you know, you define it by where by legal status, this and that. So, uh, and this has not been uncommon, right? As one of the things that Emil was mentioning earlier, uh, in terms of uh, trying the uh, Pashinyan trying to keep uh, Kocharyan in, in prison before the elections or during the election, mm-hmm. uh, it reminded me also how, for instance, for the longest time, uh, Armenia's former foreign minister and presidential candidate Rafael Vanessian was actually denied citizenship. 
for various reasons so yes. that he would actually be also left out. So it's quite an interesting to see how politics infuses into judiciary, but also how judiciary can have an influence on political processes, not in terms of check and balance system. That's not what I meant, but in terms of really being instrumentalized uh, right. in politics. All right. We'll keep watching this. Moving on to our next topic. On April 1st, in an emergency session, the Armenian parliament passed a bill enacting significant electoral reforms, which will be in effect for the early elections planned on June 20th. It was a party-line vote, with the ruling bloc voting for it, Bright Armenia voting against, and Prosperous Armenia not participating in the vote. The main change, as I understand it, is that until now, Armenians voted for political parties and blocs, aka alliances, as well as individuals as their parliamentarians. After the reform, they will vote only for political parties and alliances, and those that clear the legal thresholds for representation in the parliament will get seats proportional to their percentage of the vote. Aspet Kochigian, can you tell us what the main changes are in this reform and what they mean to the voters? What differences will it make for them now? Right. The main, main thing is that it's going to be completely proportional representation as a closed list. Up until now, one of the things that was also possible to do is that as a citizen when in Armenia, when you went to vote, you were given a list of different political parties. And at the back, you can actually rearrange the ranking of which candidate is in what position, right? Because that makes a difference. If a party gets, let's say, uh, 15% of votes, the 16th person on the list would not pass, would not make it to the parliament. So in that case, I, as a voter, I could rearrange uh, and put someone who's on the 30th on the list. And uh, and it's it's a nightmare of a calculation, I have to say. This is something that is used in different parts of the world. And this is not new, by the way. This is the mantra that the current government or the current parliament have been pushing forward, even before the current government, actually, in December 2018 elections, they wanted to pass a similar law to change the electoral code, but it was voted down. And the whole point is to encourage people to just vote for, uh, it would be easier, let's call it that way. It would be much, much easier for individuals to vote. Mm -hmm. It would be less confusing, let's call it that way, not easier. It would be less confusing. However, there are some challenges here, and this is generic criticism. One of the things would be, for instance, uh, proportional representation has its advantages. It actually encourages political parties to become stronger. Uh, It encourages political parties to be more relevant. Of course, this is in a context where there are well-established political parties and we do have functional political institutions. One of the counter-arguments would be that if you are elected by a proportional representation, you do not, you're not going to be representing a district. Mm-hmm. So right. for instance, in one district in Ardashat or in Ashtarak or in Gyumri or whatnot. You're going to represent the party view. Exactly. And you're not going to be coming in from that. So you might end up having people not from the electoral district getting into the parliament and representing those people. Right. One question I have, and I haven't been able to figure this out, I've been trying to figure it out, but it's also about the threshold, electoral threshold, in terms of what is the minimum percentage that a party needs to get in order for them to qualify to have a seat in the parliament. Historically, in, up until recently, in the current, or it already changed actually, in the, uh, the most recent electoral code, it was 5% for individual parties running on their own and 7% for alliances, electoral bloc. In 2018, I I know that the proposal was to lower this to three and five or to four and six respectively, uh, which didn't pass. 
And and the funny thing is that I think both parties or the, the Republican Party and the ARF, which voted against it, they actually could have been elected uh, had they lowered the threshold. Yes, they would have been in parliament. Yeah, and that would have changed the whole dynamic, right? <laughs> right. Um, so this is something that they have always been calling for. And it's not something new, but just the fact that the snap elections are scheduled for June, I think there is a sense of urgency why they wanted to pass the electoral code reform now. Emil, your thoughts about why the prime minister wanted to make these changes now before the snap elections? I mean, I haven't analyzed the legislation. There might be some Trojan horses in there that uh, I'm not aware of. But broadly speaking, uh, the argument is that uh, the Armenian people are not smart enough to vote for more than uh, basically one person. So uh, right now, the system is going to be very clear. Are you voting for Pashinyan? Are you voting for Kocharyan? Are you voting for this or that? No one else. If that system was a little bit more complicated, at least it presumed the the notion that Armenia is not a one-man-run state. And uh, this kind of formula, that's what it basically reinforces, that uh, Armenia is basically an elected tyranny. So you elect a tyrant that decides for everybody. And this has been the case in the last two and a half years. It's been largely the case before. But at least there was a sense that Armenia was moving towards a more representative system. There was a sense that there was discussion within the Republican Party Uh, There were disagreements within the Republican Party on some of the issues. Uh, This current government is actually doing less of that. There is much less discussion that is public. And uh, sort of the the defectors are severely punished, silent treatment in parliament, not allowed to ask questions, etc. So, yeah, this change I don't think is a good thing for Armenia, but in the general context of a nightmare that has been the case in Armenia in the last year. In general, I understand that all of the political parties were interested in this major change to go 100% proportional by party line. I think Edmond Marukian from Bright Armenia had also agreed to this a long time ago, but he basically decided to vote against it based on timing. And I think he also said that he considers the legitimacy of the upcoming elections to be in doubt as of this vote. Aspen, I think there's a couple of things. I, I completely agree with what Emil said and his assessment about how the Republican Party actually has been developing a decision-making by consensus and so on and so forth. However, we have to also consider that in situations like that. And what Emil was referring to was the development of a liberal democracy where authoritarian governments come to power through democratic means. And history is uh, full of such examples. But don't forget also that if a ruling party stays in power for a very long time, they actually need, and if they're smart enough, they need to regenerate, recycle individuals and come up with a way that the party would rejuvenate itself. And that's what the Republican Party was doing. The current leadership or the current majority obviously is not interested in that. Hypothetically speaking, maybe down the line, all other things were equal. In another five, six years time, we might have seen the same process in the ruling faction, but obviously we're not living in in a world of hypotheses. So in this context, I think it's very important to realize also the fact that in a recent IRI poll, and I think we are going to talk about the new Gallup poll as well, the fact that most people who were questioned, the My Step faction has a plurality that also favors them to run on such a new electoral code because they will have an advantage over the others. And we can talk about this in the next segment about uh, the results of the new Gallup poll as well. I'm not sure this particular change eliminating this additional set of voting for local candidates really changes the dynamic uh, in terms of uh, Armenian politics, in terms of the results of the elections. You know, you could say that, yes, to this day, there might be more people 
opposition voices sort of uh, that might run as candidates. But I'm not even sure that uh, of that. I mean, at this point... Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right, Emil. I think what would happen in this case is that individuals who actually would have been able to, uh, through resources that they might have, I don't want to call them oligarchs, I don't want to call them, you know, people with considerable uh, resources, they would have been able to, you know, buy, quote-unquote, their vote. And I'm not saying this in any well, how, way. How would they not be able to do that now? Because you don't have ranking. They have to buy through the party. They have to get it beforehand because in the past, let's say I'm X and I have money. I think that aspect is challenged by this. I think what uh, what is challenged by this is again uh, vote for one person versus for voting for several people. That's what that's the difference uh, in terms of uh, in terms well, of in the proportional outcome, representation. Usually, the head of the list is the the face and whatnot. So a lot yeah, of people yeah, of course, would tag yeah, along. This so is, this is actually this... it's a manifestation of that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, the, right now the decision making on who gets into parliament basically is decision by the number one person. He decides. Right. There's no right. other right. internal uh, mechanism for decision. Where in this case, it would have been influenced by voters to decide that you right. know I want this guy as, as number one, but I also want these people as members of the party. Right. So giving exactly. those people exactly. some independence from the number one person. And uh, that's what I meant with an independent them. third person or in the person who's on the fifth or the tenth or the fifteenth on the list, mm -hmm. but is popular in a special district. They would have been able to change the ranking and go up and be yeah. elected. Yeah, so. the biggest the biggest problem with this parliament is that there's been uh, zero zero check on the, on the executive, zero check on the executive by the ruling party, and that's a, that's you know they're supposed right. the to do that. Parliament has not really been a presence. Yeah, so they're just eliminating you know any kind of semblance of it. I mean, from what I understand, there are people who haven't been real gung ho about defending Nicole will not get get into the next parliament. So it's you know we're really into this uh, sort of solidifying one man uh, charismatic rule that you know just doesn't isn't good news in any way. All right, thank you for that discussion. This last week, MPG released the results of a new poll conducted very recently, between March 26 and 29. As with many other polls, this one was done over telephone, and they talked to around 800 people across Armenia, and their margin is listed as plus or minus 3.5%. Keep in mind that Gallup doesn't list the non-response rate, which is very important for polls like this, so we don't know what that is. Emil, uh, have you studied the results? What is your general opinion of this poll? Uh, yeah, I looked at the results. It seems like Armenia goes through uh, kind of a similar electoral, structural uh, electoral uh, developments prior to every election cycle. Uh, we have a ruling party that has sort of dominant position and we have the alternatives kind of uh, grouped towards the end. But a couple of observations. Clearly, Kocharyan is the main opposition candidate, even though he doesn't have a political party, doesn't have a political bloc. I think within this poll, uh, it looks like Kocharyan has about 10% of support, mm -hmm. uh, which is not insignificant considering that Pashinyan's 32%. So it looks like he's competitive and uh, ahead of Tsarukyan as sort of the other alternative, and Tsarukyan could be a potential coalition partner. So I can see a possibility of this political situation developing in a fairly, at this point, unpredictable way in the sense that Kocharyan could actually maybe not come first, but come sufficiently uh, hard second and Sarukyan coming in third to be able to have a, a majority in parliament. It's a hypothetical scenario, of course, but mm -hmm. it depends on many yeah. other things. 
One other thing uh, about this poll is that I have to say this Gallup International partner in Armenia, what is it called? Ar Armenian Marketing Group or, or Armenian Marketing Association. Marketing Professional Group. Yeah. D did a poll before December 2018, uh, the last election cycle, and it was uh, fairly accurate. They uh, basically had uh, Pashinyan's uh, numbers within 1%. Uh, they had uh, Tsarukyan's within 2%, 2.5%. Uh, Marukyan's also within... Uh, two and a half percent basically their sample showed Tsarukyan and Marukyan a little bit less than they ended up and also same with the Republican Party and uh, Dushnaks uh, they got uh, lower numbers that they eventually actually got in the election so that just tells me that uh, this dynamic exists in every kind of opinion poll where you sort of have the ruling party that tends to people who are asked a question who you're going to vote for uh, people who are supportive of the ruling party more likely to respond that they're supportive of the ruling party uh, versus people who are not supportive of the ruling party, they might not respond in whatever reason, and then when the election time comes, they vote for uh, the alternative. So it's going to be a competitive election, uh, one way or another. It's going to be uh, most likely, uh, you know, it's most likely going to result in another political crisis, recycling of the current political crisis. Um, yeah, that's where we are. The questions are whether Kocherian can organize, to what extent he can organize and mount the challenge. Uh, whether he would be allowed to run in the election, that's also a question. Yeah. And certainly the political life of Armenia will continue uh, one way or another, most likely in the scenarios that, you know, sort of recycled scenarios that we've had already the previous election cycles where just as this time around you have a former leader of Armenia challenging incumbent, who, you know, he's basically successor once removed. Yeah, that is an interesting point, I agree. We have a history of it. Yeah, that, that, that's just the same way it happened with, uh, you know, Manukyan Terpetrasyan, uh, with uh, Demir both father and son and uh, Kocharyan and uh, Terpetrasyan and Serge Sarkisyan. So uh, this is sort of this tradition of Armenian politics. Asped, did you find any surprises or interesting points in these results? Not really. I mean, it reconfirmed what uh, the IRI survey a couple of months ago, uh, which was conducted in February, came up with. And looking at the numbers, they're almost more or less the same. And interestingly, I did also find that MPJ had conducted another uh, survey in mid-February, mm -hmm. which again correspond. The numbers are quite interesting in terms of consistency. One thing that they do ask people uh, when they ask people about whom they're going to be voting for if the elections were held next Sunday, which uh, election or which person you're going to vote for. And they had different categories. And one of the things is that they did have the movement for the salvation of the homeland had been also listed separately. And the different political parties were listed separately. So it all depends the dynamic, right? I mean, what Emil was talking about, about Kocharyan coming back to power. One of the key things here is that if, for instance, you would see the combination or you would have an electoral a block uh, being formed, which would include obviously Tsarukyan's group, the Republican Party, the ARF, but also the Homeland Salvation Front uh, and a couple of other small parties. And for me, it would be uh, fascinating to see how, if and when, uh, Robert Kocharyan is elected into the parliament. His performance as a legislator rather than as an executive uh, representative of the executive branch. It would be quite interesting to see the uh, end results. And also, of course, if they were going to have a majority, a major majority, a uh, super majority again or not, uh, again, depending on how the different uh, votes are going to be wasted if they don't get through all the different parties run separately and they don't make it to the threshold so that 
potentially you can end up having 10-15% of the votes wasted, in which case, for instance, the my step would get 35%, will end up having uh, that uh, power or that percentage would be translated exponentially higher into the legislative body. Exactly, as you said, and like Emil said, I think it's going to be fairly competitive, at least it looks like that. Uh, I found one thing that we haven't discussed very interesting also, that the HR defender, the ombudsman, Arman Tatoyan, is the most popular person right now in Armenia. Arman Tatoyan has been very vocal and aggressive in defending Armenian rights post-war. And also this comes at a time when the government is essentially trying to, what I call, defund the ombudsman office. We've had this right. issue uh, for a couple of weeks on our agenda and there hasn't been time to discuss it, but it's a it's a good moment to at least to mention the, this fact. Yeah. Well, in that list, uh, Aspet, if you looked at it, you know, it's quite fascinating that in the IRI poll, you know, obviously Tatoyan was also uh, had a higher yes, sort of uh, high, high ranking. But what I find fascinating and, and surprising in this case is Kocharyan comes in after Nikol Pashinyan and Armin Sarkisyan in terms of his popularity mm -hmm. or in his in, her, in terms of his approval uh, rating. And uh, not surprisingly, Edmond Marukian is low on that list. And also Ser Sarkisyan. Just uh, to read it off, Arman Tatoyan is first, then Nikol Pashinyan, Armin Sarkisyan. Robert Kocharyan, Gaki Tsarukyan, Edmond Arukyan, Ser Sarkisyan. And then there are Ishan Saatelian, Basken Manukyan, and Artur Vanetsyan, in that order. Right, right. So it's always good. I mean, these polls, it's also important in these cases to cross-reference some of these things. Uh, in terms of whom would you vote for is one way to uh, to gauge the, the interest or the popularity of a single party, but also in terms of this kind of a question, uh, approval rating of individuals, you can actually cross-reference this with other questions, the earlier question to get a better idea as to uh, whom would people might vote for. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, make a couple of observations. It seems to me Kocharyan is in a similar position to uh, Terpitrasyan in terms of electability. Uh, Terpitrasyan, prior to 2008 election, when uh, he just announced his uh, plans to run, there was considerable, you know, he had a considerable anti-rating uh, and, you know, low popularity for, over his record. However, as elections neared and he became a clear opposition frontrunner, other people who just did not accept Ser Sarkisyan coalesced around him. Uh, and, and similar things happened in prior, uh, you know, electoral challenges. So you should expect Kocharyan's rating to grow as the election approaches, as other people sort of don't see any other alternative. Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, people want to have an alternative that's not the former government and not the current government, but, you know, uh, it so happens uh, there isn't one. Uh, so they have to decide between uh, Pashinyan and Kocharyan. Another thing about uh, Kocharyan is that a uh, few people remember that now, uh, when Aspet mentioned whether he could act as a legislator, I'm not sure if he's actually going to accept a parliament, you know, seat and sit in parliament or be a sort of outside. Exactly, same leader, thing. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking that's possible, about that, but yeah. uh, few people might remember this. But uh, Kocharyan sort of uh, start in the Armenian politics uh, was in 1990 when he was elected to the Armenian Supreme Council in the first sort of election that resulted in. Uh, you know, handover of power from the Communist Party to uh, Armenian National Movement in uh, 1990. Uh, he was elected from uh, Vanadzor because he was, I think, he had some friends there. That He was actually uh, in Karabakh at that time, of course, but he was elected to the Armenian parliament <laughs> at the time. In a further question, respondents were asked if they would trust the results of the polls if they were conducted under the stewardship of Nigol Pashinyan's government. There seems to be a lot of polarization to this response, with the aggregated positives and aggregated negatives weighing in at an approximate 43 to 44% yeah. each, and around 12.5% undecided. Right. 
Uh, that's, I think, uh, you know, overall, it's a continuation of one of the other questions, right, about fake media and fake news. Are you exposed to fake news and whatnot? I think that was one of the other questions, if I'm not mistaken, Aspet. That's right. And uh, there is an equal disdain and reservations that both the government and the opposition are engaged in, at least the perception by the uh, by the respondents. So looking at those two results, I'm not surprised in terms of the results. And don't forget that even those who might have said that they might not trust uh, the transparency of the elections might be people who will be voting for my step. It's just a matter of leftover perceptions from previous elections where everyone thought, yeah, well, the elections are not going to be transparent and not going to be fair and so on. So that's the complaining smurf kind of a people in the population. The complaints about the transparency of the election, unfairness of the elections, I mean, yeah, there historically there have been problems, but generally they come from the weaker side uh, that can't win. And uh, that was the case over the past couple of decades. Opposition parties couldn't couldn't mount uh, sufficiently strong challenges for a variety of reasons. Obviously, it's an unequal playing field. Some people have more money than the others. Uh, the, one, the ones that have more money tend to be closer to the government, etc., it's like uh, people complaining about, uh, you know, war being unfair because the other side has more weapons. I mean, <laughs> when, when was it fair? You know? uh, so, uh, you know, you just have to uh, be smart enough to realize which wars you can fight and which wars you cannot fight. Uh, and that's what purpose of government is, to make those calculations. You know, uh, United States is the most powerful military in the world, but uh, elect, uh, electing somebody would say, you know, let's go to war with China or Russia. That wouldn't be a very popular thing because there's a realization there's a huge cost to something like this and uh you know the fact that armenia got itself into this uh, war with turkey what can you say i mean it's a real testament to uh, problems at the, at the top there as we can see there there is a real competition even with uh, with all of the fake news all the disinformation and uh in the end people will decide uh, and as we saw it in 2018 the decision is not necessarily uh, always to their benefit but you know as uh, barack obama once uh, said at uh, one of the white house dinners it's uh, either chicken or fish you don't have any other choice you know now there's still a lot that may take place between now and june 20th including the elections not happening at all for one thing they're not fully official yet but the results indicate that Nikol Pashinyan and his MyStep coalition still have a wide lead over others. MyStep is listed with 31.7% of the votes. Robert Kocharyan, who is listed as a political party, is 5.9% and on down from there. But most interestingly for me was noting that the uncommitted categories, which were listed as none or other, these added up to over 28% of the polled responders. Yeah, as in, as in any election, mobilization of your supporters is key. Uh, so will the government be able to mobilize its voters to come out uh, in the numbers that they are in there? Get out and vote campaign. And will the opposition be able to do the same? So it's a, it's a big question. One more thing, you know, between the others and uh, the, the respondents who said other people or none, there's also 20% of people who said they are difficult, having difficulty to answer. So you add that to the, to the list, you have almost 50% of the electorate sort of uh, undecided. Which is, uh, undecided or, you know, possible campaign targets. And, you know, typically half of the people, only half of the people in Armenia vote, right? I mean, last election right. was less than 50%. So you should expect a bunch of people not, not vote. Yeah.
And one thing to keep an eye based on what Emil said, I think it's also about the, the cleaning of the electoral lists uh, and trying to see if they can and try to do this actually before the election as well. The previous election in terms of a lot of people who are on the electoral list, you know, uh, electors who have been counted over and over again, even though they have left permanently and so on and so forth. So I'm not sure if such a thing will be happening again in, in the next couple of months. And that would have also an impact on the overall voter turnout. Yeah, they have at least, what, 3,700 dead from the war and uh, as many from COVID that need to be removed. <laughs> well, as morbid as it sounds, yes, these are, you know, I, we wouldn't be surprised as, you know, staying on today's theme, you know, people will be resurrected to, to vote. All right, let's move to our final topic today. Ukraine is in the news recently as both Kiev and Moscow have escalated their belligerent rhetoric. Since 2014, Ukraine has been engaged in a territorial conflict with Russia and Russian-supported military units over Crimea, Donbass, and Lugansk. There is an uneasy truce that is in place currently, and the situation is monitored by the OSCE Special Monitoring Mission, the SMM. Any major conflict involving Russia may well have serious repercussions for the surrounding region, and there is worry that Azerbaijan and Turkey may exploit the distraction on the part of Russia to renew military actions against Armenia. Emil, can you give us a brief overview of what the rising conflict is about? Well, uh, as we recall right now, uh, what's been already seven years uh, since uh, the Ukrainian, the latest Ukrainian revolution, when uh, uh, the government of uh, Viktor Yanukovych was overthrown, a sort of a corrupt government uh, <laughs> that was uh, kind of trying to find a balance, as all Ukrainian governments try to find a balance between Europe and, uh, and Russia. New government came in, a Russian reaction was to sort of uh, angry reaction by Putin to an annex uh, Crimean autonomous region of Ukraine uh, into Russia. Crimea was a majority uh, ethnic Russian populated. Uh, it had a history of being, being part of Russian Republic within the Soviet Union and sort of a long, uh, big, uh, it had a big place in the Russian political discourse. So it was a very popular move uh, by uh, Putin within Russia and also within Crimea. Crimeans overwhelmingly supported it. There was no resistance, virtually no resistance even from the Ukrainian army when uh, Crimea, uh, Crimea within basically a couple of months became part of Russia. Uh, but as that happened, uh, there was also pro-Russian protests happening around other places in Ukraine, uh, from Odessa into uh, uh, Donbass region, Kharkov. And uh, well, initially, you know, the Ukrainian government was able to quash most of those protests, particularly in Odessa and Kharkov. Uh, but in uh, Donbass, uh, a group of sort of Russian activists, uh, former military people that were not really directly connected to the Russian government, mm -hmm went into uh, Donbass and started the war there, uh, you know, this group led by uh, Strelkov. Uh, that war escalated. The Ukrainian government was about to quash uh, the, that rebellion in that area. Uh, and as it was about to do that, Russia decided to uh, in introduce its forces and basically quash the Ukrainian army. Uh, and uh, as a result, we have this uh, region, uh, two regions, uh, Donetsk, parts of two regions, Donetsk and uh, Lugansk. Uh, that are outside of Ukrainian government control, that are controlled by sort of local uh, quasi-governments, that are, you know, supported by Russia, but sort of are, uh, you know, they're kind of unintended consequences of Crimean annexation. 
uh, Russian government never expressed uh, sort of interest in annexing uh, Donetsk and Lugansk uh, at the top level. I mean, the Russian government within the Russian government, of course, there's some arguments about that, and uh, it sort of this turned out to be another sort of frozen conflict. What is different, of course, between this conflict and some other conflicts is that uh, basically it's the same people on both sides of that line of contact. It's uh, mostly Russian-speaking Ukrainians uh, on both sides, and people go through that line all the time. They travel between Donetsk and uh, Kharkov. Kiev, the rest of Ukraine, uh, people most li- most people living in Donbas uh, sort of receive uh, pension benefits from Ukraine and from Russia, or you know try to do <laughs> try to benefit from both. So it's much less of a uh, sort of a conflict, uh, ethnic conflict, than it is. It's not an ethnic conflict. It's, yeah. it's really a civil war within Ukraine, yeah. where Russia is uh, definitely directly involved on one of the sides. What we have seen over the past six months uh, is that Ukraine has uh, saw uh, uh, the, the role of Turkish technology in Karabakh uh, as uh, really decisive uh, in terms of routing. Uh, Armenian forces, and I guess in their judgment, whatever Russian-made countermeasures that the Armenian side used or misused uh, showed that uh, this technology uh, would give them a major advantage and sort of rapid advancement uh, through Donbass. And Donbass is not very well defended, uh, this area of uh, eastern Ukraine. Uh, Local forces in considerable disarray uh, over the past six, seven years, most of the most notable commanders of local forces were assassinated. Some were assassinated maybe by Ukrainians, but most of them were just assassinated by each other. Also, there were reports that Turkey was selling its drone technology to Ukraine, right? Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, Ukraine bought uh, Turkish drone technology before Azerbaijan did. Azerbaijan only bought it last August. Yeah, yeah, okay. Right? I mean, they, they didn't, uh, they still are incorporating into its own forces. What happened in, in the case of Karabakh is the Turkish military, Turkish Air Force was mm-hmm. directly involved in the fighting. In this case, Ukrainians have been, uh, have bought the technology a couple of years ago and they've now incorporated that into uh, uh, their military. However, what is happening in the last uh, couple of weeks is that uh, Russia is showing that it will not tolerate one side at war. Uh, in Donbass, uh, Russian forces are also building up both uh, in Crimea and around uh, Ukraine. So there's a ratcheting up, uh, and it's not exercises, there's a ratcheting up of uh, posturing over potential conflict that you know Russia is sending a signal to Ukraine that it's not going to tolerate the Ukrainian uh, capture of Donbass. Uh, but there is, uh, you know, they're testing. Uh, they're, the Ukrainians are testing to see if, you know, to what extent are they not going to tolerate. If we sort of uh, grab a little bit of this or grab a little bit of that, will that trigger massive reaction or not? S- similar with, uh, you know, with other conflicts uh, or like uh, similar with Karabakh is that, uh, you know, Azerbaijanis were sort of testing, well, what if we don't bomb Stepanakert? Would that be okay if we capture this area? So that's what's happening right now. We'll see where it goes, uh, but it looks like there's going to be some kind of escalation. Is the Ukrainian military trained and ready to uh, use the Turkish technology? The Ukrainian military uh, has some experience now from this war and it's uh, a military that does get some assistance from uh, uh, the West, uh, much more than most other uh, post-Soviet militaries. Uh, and it's uh, far superior from what I can tell uh, to the local forces in Donbass. Uh, regular army, re- regular Russian army forces are not based in Donbass. So they're kind of around uh, there. They could go in there and go go out. And of course, they give fire support from Russian territory, both they did during the first war. Uh, they fired the artillery into Ukraine. The uh, you know, Air Force was also engaged in uh, you know, reconnaissance missions. But Russia did not, uh, uh, say, use its own Air Force to, say, bomb Ukraine, right? 
Right. Its role in the war in Donbass was always sort of under sort of a sense of oh, we're not really there, that, you know, this is volunteers are doing this, even though it was clear that regular army units were involved, but Russia was giving itself a little bit of deniability uh, that it was involved uh, in, the, in this war directly. So, Asped, your thoughts on this conflict and how is this theater of confrontation being activated by Biden's coming to the presidency? Well, I think to a large extent, I mean, Biden has positioned himself as more uh, antagonistic and more bullish sort of compared to the previous administration. Uh, and they do realize that this is a potentially an issue where they could end up having uh, escalation. And especially don't forget that Ukraine is where, you know, Biden was hit a lot during the campaign in terms of his son's dealings and so on and so forth. But I don't think it will escalate. I don't think it would escalate. And one of the things that Emil was mentioning earlier about Russian plausible deniability, it always reminds me of the story I tell my students about, you know, Chinese involvement in North Korea, where uh, the UN forces approach the Chinese border, Chinese volunteers, and the Chinese army said, government said, these are not my people. These are just Chinese volunteers who crossed the border. Yeah, they went on a walk and they hate. They just happen <laughs> to have tanks, heavy artillery and machine guns and so on. So I think to a large extent, that's what also uh, Russia's position is on uh, on this uh, plausible deniability. But if I may preempt you, Aspet, I know we are going to talk about the recent, uh, and you did mention in your opening uh, sort of statement about the special monitoring mission. I think it was uh, on March 30th that the foreign uh, ministry speaker of Russia, Maria Zakharova, actually did mention that they are looking forward that the OSC mission, um, a special monitoring mission, would be renewed uh, in uh, in Ukraine. Uh, basically, saying that, hey, you know, we're playing by the game. We always welcome. Uh, we're not provoking anyone, so we would welcome uh, such a situation. So I think it's more about this is uh, fast becoming a frozen conflict without any foreseeable short-term solution for that. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that Russian position in this conflict is that it basically supports Donbas reintegration into Ukraine, uh, maybe with uh, some federal system, federal right. elements introduced there. Uh, but uh, they support Donbas reintegration with Ukraine. That gives Ukraine an opportunity to uh, shift the things on the ground a little bit, hoping that Russia would not react in a, in a way, you know, uh, that would be detrimental to to Ukraine. One thing to keep in mind is just technology is is driving this in many in a, in a very major way. Right, this right. drone technology. I agree. Every major conflict over the past human history, I guess, uh, has has had an element where. Uh, new technology would sort of uh, give a sense of superiority to uh, a party that is unhappy with the status quo and tries to challenge the status quo. And uh, after the sort of successful example in Karabakh, where this Turkish drone technology was used basically to decimate artillery, decimate uh, uh, the uh, the forces in Donbas are even less organized and less armed in that sense uh, than Karabakh army, Armenian army was in Karabakh. So uh, they feel like they can do it very quickly as long as there is not that big major backlash from Russia. And they want to see, does Russia really care about this? Maybe they want to just close this page. Maybe they would be happy with uh, Donbass being sort of reintegrated in Ukraine this way. And that's where they are. Uh, they're not They're not sure what Putin will eventually decide. And most likely Putin is not sure what he will eventually decide. So that's where the situation is. March 31st was the deadline for the extension of the mandate for the OSCE SMM in Ukraine. Armenia held out from ratifying this agreement until the last hours before the deadline and stressed every country out in the OSCE. 
Aspet, can you talk about what this may have been about? Well, uh, according to Armenian sources, it was basically to express their unhappiness with the way that OSCE has been dealing with other conflicts, uh, aka the Nagorno-Karabakh, right? Uh, in yeah. terms of how indecisive they were and so on. Uh, officially, their line was that you know uh, OSCE has a lot of uh, monitoring missions, uh, several monitor monitoring missions in areas of conflict, and to prioritize one over the other is not acceptable. And to an extent that Sweden, which is actually chairing the OSCE, they actually had to uh, try to coerce or try to uh, get Armenia on their side. I think 14 hours left before right, the deadline. Right, it came to the last half day. Right, exactly. At first, I thought that it might be a way that Russia was utilizing Armenia uh, as a proxy. Exactly uh, what I thought. I thought it was basically they had received some signals from Russia not to go forward with that. Uh, but I, I truly think that this is at least one way for Armenia to feel that their diplomacy is active. I mean, again, I think it's a, it's a limited uh, gain or whatever, whatever diplomatic gain would be. But it just basically they held a sort of the last vote needed. Uh, and they looked at it as an opportunity to uh, express their grievance and also hopefully pay attention uh, or bring back attention to uh, the Arapah uh, issue and, uh, and uh, you know, OSC's role mm -hmm. in that. One article I read mentioned uh, a, a kind of a quote from Armenia saying that they had not received any signals and that's why they were late. Emil, do you think that they were waiting to find out what Russia wanted from them and then there was no signal and they were kind of confused. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who speculated about that, but I mean, it was a sort of a faint sign of life uh, of Armenian government uh, or Armenian diplomatic uh, ability. Armenia doesn't have uh, um, many leverages and, uh, you know, small countries don't have many leverages in international affairs. And OSCE, of course, being a consensus-based organization is one of those few leverages uh, that uh, Armenia can can employ, um, as Asbet already mentioned, uh, and the point was to sort of say, hey, we are unhappy with the OAC is doing in Karabakh or not doing in Karabakh. Uh, and of course, uh, up until now, in the last decade and a half, Azerbaijan was doing that. Uh, they blocked, uh, they stopped the functioning of the OAC office in Baku first, then in Yerevan. Then they were threatening to pull off uh, whatever the small monitoring mission was in Karabakh, which, by the way, is still suspended, uh, hasn't worked. Uh, in this case, Armenia uh, sort of tried to use uh, this leverage to kind of draw the attention. And I guess they got a couple of things like, uh, you know, Blinken phone call to Pashinyan, uh, maybe some other things like that. You know, uh, people promised maybe some things to Armenia to reinvigorate their efforts on the release of prisoners that everybody nobody cares about but uh, you know there's precedent for this also uh, we know and there was precedent at the Lisbon summit Armenia vetoed uh, the uh, text that didn't agree with uh, OSC text didn't agree with and also uh, in uh, 1998 or 9 I can't remember now uh, OSC was supposed to have its summit in Istanbul and uh, originally Kochanan uh, was already president they uh, they said they will veto uh, holding uh, the summit in Istanbul because, you know, we don't have diplomatic relations with Turkey. And Turkey sort of opened uh, as a gesture towards Armenia, opened this dialogue between uh, their foreign minister, I think it was Ismail Cem at the time, and uh, Vartan Oskanyan to sort of to start filling out the normalization of relations. And then Armenia agreed to the 
uh, to the to holding of the summit in Istanbul, and Kocherin actually went to Istanbul for that summit. So th- there is a history of sort of using this leverage, but you know, w- let's see what Armenia actually gets out of this. Uh, you know, so far phone call. I don't know. Well, whatever it is, it actually had an adverse impact as well, uh, because you know, according to some. Uh, diplomats uh, uh, from other OSCE countries. It's like, okay, this is like the monitoring mission is very important. We shouldn't be utilizing it. Armenia shouldn't be instrumentalizing it or shouldn't be politicizing it. And others would referring to, okay, Armenia is venting its sort of frustration and anger. You know, it's basically spoiled brat kind of a reputation. Uh, so it's just not, you know, it, you, you, we have to realize that when it comes to foreign policy and diplomacy, it's not just one time thing. You know, it, you have to have consistency. You have to have your pieces all lined up, your dominoes all lined up, uh, and then you execute it rather than, you know, uh, waiting for an opportunity like this here and there to yeah. uh, to react. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I agree that this, this things uh, need to be thought through uh, and uh, it cannot be uh, spur of the moment decisions or uh, without you know, you have to give advance warning to your main partners. Uh, you have to tell, you know, US, you have to tell Russia, you have to tell uh, some of the European governments that this is what we're going to do. And, you know, we can't change our mind unless we get something, this is what we're going to do. And then they're not surprised. They're, you know, they're prepared. Maybe they, they do some legwork and come back with some kind of offer. And, uh, you know, that's how things are worked out. I don't know if what happened this time around. I doubt it was uh, well thought through, but... Uh, At least, like I said, it's a faint sign of life. Okay, we'll have to leave it there for today. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate your time. Happy Easter. Bye-bye. Thank you. Happy Easter to you too, Osmed. That concludes our program for this Week in Review episode. We hope it has helped your understanding of some of the issues from the previous week. We look forward to your feedback and your suggestions for issues to cover in greater depth. Contact us on our website at grung.org or on our Facebook page, ANN-Grung, or in our Facebook group, Grung-Armenian News Network. Special thanks to Laura Osborne for providing the music for our podcast. On behalf of everyone in this episode, we wish you a good week. Don't forget to subscribe to our channels, like our pages, and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.